This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. A plant-driven, crowded, rambunctious garden that's filled with life is kind of the ideal that we're after. We mm. want, um, Thomas said one time, more life breeds more life. That the more we plant living things, the more we attract living things, which generally improves our life, and it's all this beneficial circle. This week, I've gathered a handful of gardeners from ranging interests and locales to offer some thoughts on garden books that catch their eyes and imaginations this season. We'll be right back. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The holidays and end of year are upon us, and with them all those lists. Things to do, food to cook, intentions to make, gifts to consider. In the gifting area of life, in my experience, gardeners and plant lovers are pretty easy. They don't want much, and as long as you put a little thought into it, and it's garden-themed, you're pretty safe. Plants books, seeds, subscriptions, and good garden gear make it hard to go wrong, to bring holiday cheer, to offer as thanks when visiting someone's home in this festive time, or to help bolster your or their New Year's resolutions in the garden or on the trail. Garden books are a perennial favorite, but can get tricky. Which ones are good? Which ones are innovative? Which have stood the test of time? This week, I've gathered a handful of gardeners from ranging interests and locations to offer some thoughts on garden books that catch their eyes and imaginations this season. My guests are all gardeners, cooks, mothers, and creatives. Yolanda Burrell is owner of Pollinate Farm and Garden Supply in Oakland, California. Loreen Edwards Forkner of Seattle, Washington, is editor of the Pacific Horticulture Magazine, and Penn Pender is an avid gardener and garden book reader in Mount Macedon, Australia. Welcome to you all. Thank you for participating in this first ever Cultivating Place book club, as it were. Hi, thanks for having me. This is Yolanda. This is Loreen. Thank you. Hi, this is Penn. Thank you. The world of garden books is multi-layered and can seem confusing to the uninitiated, but it's not that complex once you're oriented just a little bit. There are many layers and types of garden books, the how-tos, the regional, the literary, the monographs, the glossy, lovely coffee table picture books, and of course, there are crossover books such as garden cookbooks, garden craft books, and so forth. I started by asking each of these women to choose two books they'd like the world to know more about, and then three runner-up titles to add to the mix. All the information on all of the books will be in today's episode notes if you miss any information or you're not in a place to take notes. But let's get started with each of them giving us a little background on what they look for in a garden book. Because garden books are investments of time and money. So, Yolanda, I want to start with you. 
talk to me a little bit about what you look for in a book based on your life as a gardener, and then tell us about your top two books. My life as a gardener is a little bit different. I'm a busy mom. I have a business. And I'm not the type of person to read a book from cover to cover. Mm. I want it to look really good inside. That'll kind of grab my attention. I'm I'm creative. I love working with my hands. So anything that's got a sidebar that has a project associated with the garden project that I'm working on, like a building project or interesting materials to use, I really like that too. Um, and I also want a really strong index and a really compelling table of contents so that I can just look at what I want and look for what I want and then go find it and read about that. Yeah. Um, usually I'll read a chapter at a time or maybe even a section at a time. I use them more like, like reference books than reading books. You are the owner of Pollinate Farm and Garden. Talk a little bit about that business because you sell quite a few books there. Is that right? That's correct. Pollinate Farm and Garden is kind of an interesting concept. It is a it's a supply store. It's for basically for people who want to produce more of their own food at home, whether they're working in a school garden or a community garden or perhaps um, just growing herbs on a windowsill or if they're blessed with a backyard and small orchard. I just want to encourage more people to be sustainable by growing their own food and um, reducing the carbon miles and carbon footprint of food transportation. Mm -hmm. In Northern California, where I live, not as far north as you, but in the Bay Area, we get basically 12 months out of the year, we can we can garden and grow something edible year round. And so my customers include, like I said, school gardeners, small local urban farmers, as well as families and, and singles and households who want to grow more of their own food. So it's a combination hardware store, old fashioned feed store, kitchen store, bookstore, we also sell garden tools and hardware. So right. All of that under one roof. Yeah. And I think your books really reflect uh, that range and variety and, and focus. So tell us about your, your two books. Well, the first one I really love because often I'll get people come into the store kind of wide-eyed and ambitious. Um, we try to make it sort of inviting to them. We try to make it very inviting to them. Um, but they don't grow. They they move from an apartment and they finally bought their house and they're really gung-ho about it, but they don't know what to do. And they will confess to me, I'm a beginner, so please bear with me. <laughs> and I say, do I, have the, do I have the book for you? And this book is called Food Grown Right in Your Backyard, A Beginner's Guide to Growing Crops at Home by Colin McCrate and Brad Hom, co-founders of Seattle Urban Farm Company. This book has all of the things that I spoke about before, colorful photographs, it's got a great index, it's got a great table of contents, and it's just really well organized. So it starts with the soil and all of the kind of geeky things that 
that you may may or may not want to delve into about uh, um, NPK and and soil amendments and you know what what kind of soil and how your soil feels. You may not want to do that. You might just want to know how to grow radishes and where. Mm-hmm. So it it goes through. Um, the types, it gives you great examples of the types of gardens. So it shows somebody growing a house with um, veggies grown in containers and flower pots. It shows um, beds grown in the ground. It also shows various types of raised beds, including a sidebar on how to build your own raised bed, if that's what you want to do. It talks about irrigation, just laying out the plot and Last but not least, it has kind of a compendium of common veggies that one grows. It doesn't necessarily get into the varieties, but, you know, tomatoes versus cukes versus lettuce, things like that. And, you know, when to plant it, how to grow it, when to harvest it, because how do you know when an artichoke is ready to harvest (laughs) by looking at it? So it's really a, a, a basic book. But I sell a lot of them. I refer to it all the time because I just love the simplicity of the book. And your second book is a little bit related. Tell us about that one. A little bit related, but a little, but a lot different. Right. It's called, it's called The Vegetable Gardener's Guide to Permaculture, Creating an Edible Ecosystem by Christopher Shine with Julie Thompson. Christopher Shine is a local author. He teaches permaculture at a local junior college. It's, again, about growing veggies. However, it's more ecologically minded. It mm-hmm. talks about permaculture and how you kind of use ecological gardening principles in growing food. Um, one of the tenets of permaculture is if you are working too hard, you're working too hard. So... <laughs> It makes it real simple. You just use the relationship between the land and the relationship of the plants to do the work for you. So, for example, they'll talk about the various understories. Um, You've got trees at the top story and then bushes. And then further down, you have strawberries and then you've got mushrooms. So Mm -hmm. all of these are growing in what's called a food forest where you've got uh, huge bio, biodiversity of plants, lots of edible perennials incorporated into that garden. So you don't have to worry about replanting every year like you would when you do annual crops. These things will give you um, produce year after year. Um, and so it also talks about how to harvest water, rainwater, um, making swales in your backyard. Um, Lots of about composting, things like that. Mm-hmm. So using the inputs as well as outputs, it's recycling everything. Mm-hmm. Nothing goes to waste in a garden. Those, mm-hmm. those sound so wonderful because, of course, edible gardening and ecological gardening are really high interest, I think, around the world in, in gardeners. Um, 
really high on gardeners' interest lists around the world based on just my readers and listeners and comments and feedback. And there are so many interesting books on both of these. It's really it's really helpful to get some direction, uh, especially depending on your climate. Yeah, exactly. And I, the reason I love this book is because although it is a permaculture book, it is it is not intimidating. Um, you can do permaculture, use permaculture principles in your own backyard. It's just very small scale. Um, you can have perennial beds, annual beds, using your bamboo to make trellises, orcharding, mm-hmm. how to choose crops, cover cropping, which is very, very important, making compost tea. So everything has more than one use, which is another concept called stacking functions. Things have more than one use and um, makes work a breeze and makes your garden beautiful as well. Right. And I love um, all three of you are cooks and you all really enjoy food and the beauty of food, which which I I think is a wonderful connector for, for many gardeners. Definitely. All right, I think I'll move on to Lorene and then Penn, and then we'll have an open discussion at the end to talk about some of the uh, connecting points, differences, similarities, and what comes to, to mind for all of us. So, Lorene, now we'll move to you. Just to refresh you, Lorene Edwards Forkner is in Seattle and is editor of the Pacific Horticulture magazine for the Pacific Horticulture Society. You have chosen two books that take us in a slightly different direction and yet still very tangible and hands-on with a twist. Tell us about your books and what you're looking for in a book uh, when you decide to to buy it or read it. Well, I basically live in the pages of a book. As an editor, I consider myself to be sort of a professional reader. Um, I And so I spend lots and lots of time in lots of different kinds of books. And these two that I chose are really appeal to me because they're beautiful. I think as as gardeners and people who are working with plants and flowers that that beauty is is very central to our kind of aesthetic. And both of these books are very beautiful and yet they're also very um, functional. They're there's it's not just skin deep beauty. It's not just eye candy. This is, you know, some hardworking information. So the first of my two books is called Planting in a Post Wild World. And also as a writer, I love the play of language. And I think uh, this notion of rewilding or post wild is this is a very evocative concept that um, has been popular in recent years. And I think it really kind of gets to the root of what some of these creative authors are talking about. So this book is by Thomas Rayner and Claudia West. Um, and I would say probably more than most things that I've read recently, um, this book has inspired me to loosen my grip on the garden. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm 
I'm letting nature have more of a, I don't know if I'm letting nature have more of a hand or if nature is taking me by the hand. Um, But, but both of these authors, and I'm, I'm very lucky that I've heard them speak, um, Jennifer on your show, as well as in person. Mm -hmm. And they are, they're very charismatic. They're very positive. Their message is optimistic and empowering. Um, and all the things that are a wonderful antidote to uh, kind of doom and gloom and despair that we're all, uh, you know, the world is terrible. Uh, but they are huge fans of crowded, uh, crowded landscapes. And maybe it's as a former nursery owner, I always think more plants is a good approach a plant-driven, crowded, rambunctious garden that's filled with life is kind of the ideal that we're after. Thomas said one time, more life breeds more life, that the more we plant living things, the more we attract living things, which generally improves our life. And it's all this beneficial circle, which really, really resonated with me. The book is built around the premise The subtitle is Designing Plant Communities for Resilient Landscapes. And this notion of designed plant communities is pretty much their central tenet. This is the idea that as designers, as gardeners, we are combining plants together according to how they function in the landscape. They introduce the idea that plants have, they have functions in the garden and then they have design purposes in the garden. Mm -hmm. And as gardeners, it's easy for us to think and focus on the design aspect, what are the aesthetics of it. And so these functional layers are kind of the unseen parts of the garden. How are those ground covers serving to keep uh, the soil covered and mitigating rainfall or those roots going down deep into the subsoil to break things up and to work in harmony with the plants around it? The idea that nature doesn't usually plant one thing in any square foot. And if you go out and look in a natural meadow or something, you'll in fact find deep, deep, diverse biodiversity in any square foot. Mm -hmm. And that we, you know, how can we think like that? How can we think like nature? I appreciate very much the kind of perspective of that they're the the authors are talking about about thinking about how plants behave in the landscape mm-hmm. which really takes the conversation beyond native or non-native mm-hmm. they're talking about how you know how does the plant behave in relationship to its place in relationship to each other um i i very much like that open-ended approach i tend to have issues if people try to put me in a box and say, I can only grow this or only grow that. <laughs> it's also, it, it draws it, it draws me as a reader and a gardener into a deeper understanding of kind of the functional biology behind the plant, which mm-hmm. sounds super dorky, but it actually is kind of wonderful when you start knowing how these um, plants behave. Yeah. So speaking of, um, function and 
Knowing How Plants Behave. Tell us about your second book because there's some similarities to it, but then it's it's different. And I want, yeah, tell us about your second book. Right. So my second book is called Natural Color, uh, Vibrant Plant Dye Projects for Your Home and Wardrobe by Sasha Durer. Gorgeous book. Lots of beautiful photographs. So engaging. I always love a good craft experiment. Um, and of course, if it's all based in the garden, all the better. And I'm a complete color geek. So the idea that Sasha introduced that our landscapes on any given day, and it would be different from one day to the next in the course of a year, that our landscapes have a signature color palette. And in fact, it might be quite hidden. Um, the green that we see in a tree may in fact produce a coral color when we turn it into a plant dye. It's mm -hmm. just these, you know, these hidden hues that we can call out and use. Um, it really brought out a whole nother level of a relationship for me in the garden. And I immediately start thinking about, oh my gosh, you know, a baby is born on that day. And so your garden has a signature color palette of that day. That is that child's color palette. Um, I, I just found that very um, inspiring. It's mm. caused me to play in the garden. Um, I grew a crop of Japanese indigo, which was super easy to do. Um, getting it to turn the beautiful teal color that it was supposed to was not quite as successful. Um, <laughs> but it, but it was the process. I felt like I was literally foraging for you know something magical or the alchemy of it. Um, I have much better luck with avocados, which of course I don't grow my own avocados here in the Pacific Northwest. But I am addicted to this glorious peachy coral color that those lumpy reptilian skins of a Haas avocado produce the most beautiful color. Mm. Um, and I will talk about it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're joined by three avid gardeners sharing with us their garden book recommendations for the upcoming holiday and for life. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Wow. And just like that, it's December. The month of November was a whirlwind, friends. It kicked off with my birthday and my driving intention to complete the manuscript for the book I'm working on, on women in horticulture for Timber Press. The campfire, as most of you know, broke out on November 8th, and the next three weeks were just reeling from that and its aftermath. Just this week, my high school-aged daughter went back to school for the first time in three and a half weeks. And while things still don't feel normal, they feel more normal-ish in just these little acts of routine. I stand among the very, very lucky, with a small house and garden intact. The sight of my lemons ripening on their little tree has never felt so rich and bountiful. And bountiful hardly covers the acts of generosity that have poured into our area since the fire. Words, goods, and many deeds. 
On December 16th, in collaboration with the Plant Barn and Gifts here in Chico and with the generous community support of Magnolia Gifting Garden and the Master Gardeners of Butte County and many other caring plant people of this region and around the country, there will be an open house reception for campfire gardeners those gardeners affected by the campfire in all the townships that burned. With generous donations from Women's Work Gloves, Root Pouch Grow Bags, Timber Press, Story Publishing, Firefly Press, and Pass the Pistol, Florette Flower Farms, Corona Tools, Fisker Tools, Chico Chai, Brent and Becky's Bulbs, and many caring gardeners, there will be garden care packages for up to 200 gardeners who've been laid so low. With a little loving kickstart, we want these gardeners back to the dirt and the plants that sustain them and us all as soon as they can get there. I send good thoughts to you in your December garden, wherever you may be. In snow, in sun, our gardens make a difference. Now, back to our December Garden Book Roundup with Yolanda, Loreen, and Penn. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're in the middle of the first ever Cultivating Place Garden Book Club, and we're joined by three avid gardeners offering up their thoughts on good garden books. We're back now with Yolanda Burrell of Pollinate Farm and Garden in Oakland, California, Lorene Edwards Forkner, editor of Pacific Horticulture Magazine from Seattle, Washington, and Penn Pender, gardener and cook in Mount Macedon, Australia. Welcome back. Already between the two of you, Yolanda and Lorene, I see some of these connective threads uh, in terms of ecological function, uh, the food forest versus the layered function of a, of a wild space being very similar, and then the, the hidden elements and hidden energies of things that we as gardeners, and of course the hands-on. I think these are universal particulars for, for most gardeners I know. Um, I'm going to take us to Penn uh, and have her walk us through what she looks for in a book based on her gardening activities and passions and walk us through the two books that you chose, Penn. Um, I look for... Um, two different kinds of books, really. I Firstly, uh, I look for the, the how-tos um, mm -hmm. to inspire me. And the second type of book that I look for is often nature writing and mm -hmm. just being completely absorbed in the pages of the book and, um, and that, that writing taking me to another place, to maybe to a little wood somewhere or into the jungles of far, far away. And it, it transports me. So I really sort of like both types of books. So the first book that I've chosen is one called The Village by a young Australian couple called Matt and Lentil Purbrick. And they live probably about an hour away from here. And they've, they've just um, produced this beautiful book this year, which is has a, a lovely concept, I thought. It was a little bit different. The idea of a village and the idea of being connected um, with 
your your family or your friends or the, your 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 neighbours or even pe- people um, around the world that you might be in contact with or um, and it was the idea of being able to share share what what you love and and, and what you grow. Mm-hmm. Um, this book it it starts off talking about the idea of, of community and how that they've they've looked they actually travelled to other parts of the world before they wrote the book uh, to where people lived for a long time and there was a common thread that it was people that felt that they belonged in their society in their community that they all had um, they were sort of deeply connected that way mm. and so they start off the book with that premise. And then it talks about setting up a garden to grow your own vegetables and flowers. And there's very, um, it's quite a natural, naturalistic style of of planting and lots of ideas about uh, water conservation and and also doing things a bit more messy, a bit more wild, which I think goes with what Doreen has been saying and Yolanda actually seems to be a common thread. Uh, about how it's often nature often prefers us to be a little bit more messy and a little bit more wild. Mm. And at the at the end of the book, there's some wonderful recipes uh, to seeing what you can do with your produce. And, and amongst them, things like making kombucha from scratch and something that I'm really keen to try, which is to ferment your own vine leaves and you pickle them in a, in a salt brine. So I'm very keen to try that. Mm. So that's a very, very inspiring book and it's got beautiful pictures. And the other thing that it has, which I found very helpful, is there's a, a section in the middle with lots of charts on when to when to plant and um, you know, the spacings apart from them. And a very useful section on, on how to, to deal with pests and diseases naturally. Mm. So there was a lot of common sense and um, a lot of things that I really... I mean, gardening for quite a while, but there were lots of ideas that I got from that, and and lots of lots of help. Yeah, and then your your second book uh, takes us a little bit more into the kind of garden literature. Yes, this is a fantastic book, and probably the most profound book I've read in a long, long time. Mm. Um, it's called Wilding by Isabella Tree. And I actually came first came across it through uh, reading Dave Goulson, who I think has been on your show before. Mm-hmm. Um, his and he mentions the NEP project in his book BeeQuest. Ah, yeah, and it, it really fascinated me. And and when I found that she had she'd written a book uh, about the project, which basically um, her and her husband they had. A big farm and estate in England uh, with about 3,500 acres, so a lot of land that they tried to farm intensively. They had, I think, cows and um, arable, and it it wasn't doing very well. And in about the year 2000, they decided just to let it go to nature and uh, being and that sounds a bit crazy, but they were very inspired by a Dutch ecologist called Franz Vera, who wrote a book called Forest History and Grazing Ecology, and they were very inspired by that, and and went went to see the the, the reserve in, in Holland and came back and 
they just basically um, ripped up all, all the fences and sold off their dairy cows and machinery and equipment and they stopped putting chemicals on the land and they just let the land revert back to its natural self. Mm. And the results have been astounding, incredible return of, of many species on the watch list for being endangered. And and this was the the really astounding thing for me was that how quickly that happened. Yeah. In, in about 10 years, they were really seeing huge results. And I must admit, it's Yes, I, I, I often talk to my kids, we were talking about the environment a lot. And it's the first sort of really hopeful message that I could say, well, you know, we've been reading this amazing book and it's it's really, it's showing us that there is actually a lot that we can do and it's not expensive. It's very simple. It's just a question of rethinking and mm-hmm. um, looking at something with, with different eyes again. So that's been a really really a, a wonderful thing to to have, have read about yeah. I feel very inspired by it the the NEP project and that's K-N-E-P-P which is the name yes. of their property it really was a it was a remarkable effect and you know that concept that you were just talking about Penn of there's a lot we can do and so much of what we can do is stop doing all the things mm. we're doing now uh, is to is to do less and uh, intervene and interfere and um, degrade a, a lot less. And the the list of rare and endangered bird species that reappeared on this land once they got going in the project was phenomenal. Yes, it, it's just really amazing, and and I, I think it. it at the end of the book, it talks about, as well as the, um, the all the creatures that appear back again, it talks so much about the soil. And by not putting chemicals on the soil, what this, that's amazing fertility and, and health of the soil that, that is done by all these tiny creatures that we we often don't even see all the worms and, and talking about different types of worms, one worms that uh, tunnel vertically and horizontally and and, and discoveries about pigs that she, she didn't realize they had, they introduced some pigs and she didn't realize that pigs can swim and they can actually dive down deep and hold their breath <laughs> looking for, <laughs> looking for little creatures to eat and things like that. I just really, it was so lovely to, to see that, you know, we often, we don't, because we, we interfere so much with, with, with animals that we often don't see them in their natural um, environment and what they can do. So that really kind of really blew my mind, actually, just um, learning about all these different things that we've kind of forgotten about. Yeah. And our, and our concepts of things that, that um, what was very interesting f- for me is that I think with both books that I chose, The Wilding and The Village, it's that they were both suggesting that we need to move backwards to move forwards, Mm -hmm. that we actually need to return to a time when it was a bit more wild, when we didn't interfere as much and we weren't putting lots of chemicals on things, Um, when we did feel more of a connection with nature and the community around us. And that really, really struck me. And I thought these both both books were suggesting very simple ways of that we really can make a difference, and I found that really inspiring and really wonderful to be able to you know discuss with my kids. You know that there are 
there are there is hope you know that we we can we can change things and, and return balance to the to the landscape and to the earth this week we're joined on cultivating place by three avid gardeners and readers sharing with us their garden book recommendations for the upcoming holiday stay with us we'll be right back for more after a break Hey, it's me, Jennifer. The campfire, I know, is just one instance of natural disaster and hardship in a world that is full of them. And as I wrote in the invitation I sent out to the gardeners for the open house I mentioned earlier, we all do the best we can to help where we are. I'm here. Thank all of you who've helped. In the midst of this, I've had so many notes of support and reflection on perspectives and priorities. This one stood out to me from Megan in South Africa. She will be a guest on Cultivating Place towards the end of the month, talking about her project, Turning Into Flowers. She wrote, quote, In the past week, some of the areas we filmed for our project this year have burned. The relationship between the California fires and the ones here in South Africa has been at the top of our hearts. One of my favorite hopeful moments this past year was a message and photo from Rupert, her project partner. She goes on, A mutual friend's farm that burned in 2017 had suddenly come alive with flowers last seen 23 years ago. Rupert took his little daughter to go and see the ashy moonscape coming back to life. I'm holding tight to that memory, she writes. This year's fire season is just beginning out here, she goes on, and it's already devastating. The knowledge that many Finbos species need fire to germinate and to clear old growth somehow tied in for me to your incredible appeal and amazing responses to your Campfire Gardeners initiative. Somehow, in the heart of this climate change-driven devastation, new growth is possible, and communities come together, not in spite of the loss, but inside of it." End quote. Hold on to that, my gardening friends, because, in my opinion, all of our gardens and us as gardeners are part of that. We are growth possibility and our vast community coming together, not in spite of life or loss, but inside of it. That's my New Year's resolution for us all. I would love to hear yours. If you feel like it, please share your resolutions for the coming year in the comments on Instagram or Facebook, or by sending me and Sarah a note cultivatingplace at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. You listening and responding with your stories or comments and feedback are like a drink of water and a shot of organic compost for Cultivating Place. I kid you not. Now back to our December book roundup with Yolanda, Lorene, and Penn. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, you're joining us in the middle of the first ever Cultivating Place Garden Book Club, when I'm joined by three avid gardeners offering up their thoughts on good garden books. We're back now with Yolanda Burrell of Pollinate Farm and Garden in Oakland, California, Lorene Edwards-Forkner, editor of Pacific Horticulture Magazine, and Penn Pender, gardener and cook in Mount Macedon, Australia. Listening to each of you talk about these different books, so many connective threads came up for me, but I really want to hear what came up for each of you in listening to these different books, these different kinds of books, and the things that resonated for you. Let's start with you, Yolanda. Planting in a post-wild world sounds really beautiful. Um, So, of course, while someone else was talking, I was looking it up and looking at the pictures and it was just really beautiful and it's kind of wild and I'm just trying to figure out how I can get some vegetables in that mix (laughs) but um, it it was really gorgeous and of course I believe Sasha Dur is from the Bay Area Mm -hmm. and I didn't know she had another book out and it's more of a project book I guess so I'm I'm shopping as I'm doing this interview Um, so that's fun and then the village I'd like to know from Penn, is it strictly Australian as far as their timelines? I know I know you're on a, the flip side of us as far as seasons go, but could I apply those things? Yeah, you definitely what? you definitely could apply them. It's it they it's quite temperate, but yeah, because it just um, and looking at the at the photos and. They're just cute people to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And just, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It looks like they're having a blast. So, um, yeah, I might I might try to get that book. Yeah, there's some lovely, there's some really good ideas. That, um, and the recipes are really lovely, too. And I don't know if have you ever tried kombucha. I don't know if you ever made that yourself. I, but that's I actually very easy week. to make. Ah, yeah, fantastic. We well, <laughs> That's really good. There's lots of other fermenting and pickling recipes there, too. Nice. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, Lorene, what about for you? What came up? I uh, think that this interview is inspiring and will probably cost me some money. <laughs> um, because I, I, you know, I just swallow books whole. The, um, the notion of the permaculture in an edible landscape is very attractive to me. Um, just the notion that it we don't have to work so hard. An edible garden can be a very labor-intensive um, activity. And so I find as life gets busy with other things or maybe I'm distracted with natural color, um, I... <laughs> The notion of having some perennial crops and, you know, maybe my lettuce gets eaten by slugs, but my artichokes come in fabulously and you can never have too many uh, blueberries. So I'm really attracted to the idea of these permanent, productive, edible and beautiful plants in a landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's it's not as uh, it probably separates me from those the beautiful people in Australia who are farming all of this, um, which is, of course, very aspirational and, and inspiring. But I honestly, that's probably past for my my life. <laughs> um, although 
I was such a fan of Yule Gibbons as a kid. So that whole back to the land and, you know, we're going to grow all our food and we're going to do it collectively. I, it, it's so positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and anytime somebody has that optimistic uh, note, I, I just think that is so powerful in this world. Um, well, Laureen, you should come to Oakland because there's so many people doing that mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. It's great. And Lorena, I was going to say that it's interesting because they also advocate you don't have to grow all this all yourself. In fact, they actually moved from a bigger farm where they they grew lots of things. They actually it was it kind of got too much, and they and they felt like they missed a connection with with friends and like-minded people. So they actually moved closer into to nearer town, and they acknowledged that that we can't do everything ourselves, and it's nice to be able to go to a farmer's market or. Um, you know, swap veggies with friends. And so they, you know, you really can, it doesn't have to be on a big scale. Well, and and that's something I've always maintained that, um, you know, grow your own food and you will fall to your knees in front of farmers because the education we get at what it takes to produce good, healthy, wonderful, nutritious food is... um, is quite an education mm-hmm. and and as much as anything over the years is I you know have grown a lot of food in my own garden and am doing it less because I appreciate so much my farmer market that that is keeping me supplied. Yes, uh, me too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like it the the connections that it's we all eat, right? right. So yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And very, very important people in our world. Yeah. <laughs> and very few of us like to get up at four in the morning mm-hmm. to harvest lettuce for the market. Mm-hmm. Right. So I respect them a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's a fabulous education in farmer farmer yeah. heroes. Now, was there anything else that came up for you, Penn? I loved the natural color book that Doreen was talking about. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking I'm definitely going to be getting that for one of my girls for, for Christmas <laughs> because they're, they're very interested in devi- environment and fashion and it just seems to cross both those areas so beautifully. And I did look at the pictures and they are amazing and the ideas. Um, we've had a little go at um, dyeing some with some eucalyptus from the garden and that worked really well. So I'd definitely like to do that a bit more. Yeah. And I also loved the, the food grown right in your background um, that that was the, the pictures were so clear and there were so many good examples. I like the fact that they'd gone they did examples that that people had and um, it was very inspiring. yeah and the actually the permaculture is also close to my heart because the it was actually sort of put together by two Australians, Bill Mollison and Dave Holmgren mm-hmm. and not that far away from me, about an hour's drive from here. And uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful way of, of growing, growing things. Yeah. The, one of the threads that's clearly come up with each of you is this idea of, of buying a book and giving a book. And, and in part, that is why we're talking about this. Although the publishing world seems to be suffering uh, in, in this time, in this economy, and switch to digital, the garden book world seems to be doing just fine. But I'm always so aware, and, and I think it was Lorene who said, I'm worried about how much this episode is going to cost me. Because I, I, I know that when I talk to people about their books, it does it, – it, sends whether or not that's what I mean it sends a message that you you should buy this and 
I don't want to add to the consumerism in the world, and I. Um, but there are certain things that we spend money on, and we have to choose them consciously and decide where to buy them. How do each of you read your garden books? Do you always buy them? Do you borrow them from the library? Do you read them digitally? Uh, let's start with you, Yolanda. I've tried reading any kind of book digitally, but I end up investing in a new phone because, you know, it's just easy to, it's easier for me at least to read while I'm working. Mm -hmm. um, but reading digitally on, on my phone or my iPad while I'm gardening just doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I just want to see the beautiful photos in context without having to scroll also. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, 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 Try to buy books from local independent bookstores, yep. first of all. Um, absent that, we have an incredible rummage sale here annually in Oakland, and I get a lot of garden books from there. Mm. You get a huge grocery bag full for a dollar. And, you know, I've, I've cycled through my own library through, through that rummage sale. And I always like to share them with my friends and um, so I get them a lot of different ways. It's yeah. kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Lorene? I am, um, being an editor, I am very much in the garden publishing world mm -hmm. and I'm super fortunate that I get a lot of reading copies. Um, I also know a great many, um, friends of mine who are garden writers and I work with them and talk with them about their books. Um, I, I am in that world. Um, that said, I also love my library and am always checking things out. I do this especially with cookbooks. I tend to have a problem with um, cookbooks and that I'm, you know, spontaneously, it's like, well, I don't have that one. I have to buy that one too. And, and I started checking the cookbooks out or garden project books and, you know, these natural color, there's so, it, it's a, it's a large market of garden color books. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll check them out and read through them. And if I find that I, I do, you know, want it, you know, I, it, it must be mine, then I will buy it. Um, because my garden library is absolutely integral to everything that I do. It yeah. is, I always like to say, it's my sharpest tool, the one I never throw out in the clean green. Yeah. So I, these are resources and I read them again and again and um, I loan them out to people and I use them as the basis of my own writing. And um, so I don't have the best wardrobe, but my library <laughs> rocks. <laughs> what about you, Penn? Well, I, I can really identify with what Lorraine's saying. Uh, I'm, I'm the same. Plants and books are my extravagance. I actually read Kindle, but mm -hmm. I also love to buy books as well. And I go to the library and I love secondhand bookshops yeah. um, very much. So I do a, a mixture of all of them. And what I do find is often if I if I have read something digitally, then if it's really a beautiful book, for example, Dan Pearson's latest book and, and the Wilding book, I started reading both of them digitally, but I thought, no, I need to have this on my bookshelf right, forever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I bought it. And that's kind of if it you know, if it really sings to me. So most most of my books are are, are you know are, are on, on the shelf. Yeah. I love to listen. So the 
it's hard with the how-to books. They, one, they don't often make them into an audio book, but the garden literature books they do, and I do the same thing that you just said, uh, Penn, as I will start listening. I just listened to Anna Pevord's most recent one, Landscaping, this way. But then, as you say, if it's good enough, I feel compelled to both support the writer by buying it and uh, just have it on my shelf so that I know I could go back to it or lend it out if I wanted to. One of the elements that really struck me as so important and ran through every single one of your descriptions of what you look for in a book uh, was this idea of the the content you're taking in serving more than one function. And uh, whether it was the permaculture book helping us to integrate ecology into our gardens and foods or planting in a post-wild world asking us to think differently about uh, the functions of plants and how they behave in, in an outdoor setting or the community aspect of the village and the rewilding um, aspect in personal experience in wilding by Isabella Tree. I'm sorry, what a great name is Isabella Tree. Um, and, and I wonder if each of you would speak to the importance of that, of not only your garden books, but maybe your gardens themselves serving a greater purpose in this world. Um, for me, I think that, well, yes, my how-to garden books, my whole, my whole space is a lab, and so um, it's constantly changing. Um, but then I kind of internalize everything that I've learned and all of my experiences at, at home um, and turn that around, and I'm always talking gardening with other folks, mm -hmm. too. So I kind of internalize my own learnings and then share that with other people or with my family, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What about you, Lorene? I would say... Um, that my reading of the last, say, five years has really prompted me to look up from my garden. Um, I, I started a garden and owned a nursery because of my deep, deep love of plants. And, um, you know, the collect all of them, right? Don't, don't let a single one get away from you. <laughs> and um, the more that I am learning about the greater world and the pressures on the world, the more that I'm looking up from my very egocentric garden space and thinking about, um, you know, how does it integrate with the rest of the wild world? And, and that's been, um, that's taken me someplace magical um, because it is, it, I don't know, there's the buoyancy, there's the resiliency, um, and, and those are all things that in turn, as I learned to manage that in the garden, I mean, those are traits that I would love to integrate into my entire life. Um, if I could be a little more resilient and rambunctious and lively, that would probably be good for every aspect and every relationship in my world. Hmm. What about you, Penn? Yes, I, I found that um, reading and gardening has it's taught me so much. They both kind of feed off each other. And um, I love you know, reading about introducing more and more wildlife into my garden and then actually seeing the effects of that in my garden. So it's been very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
one of the things that I will end with is uh, in a different conversation with Yolanda, she said to me, so much of teaching the people to come into her garden um, has to do with actually getting them to re-remember what their body and their their sort of ancestry already knew. And I think that kind of runs across uh, all of these books and all of your instincts for how you choose books is this I, this almost cellular connection we have to plants and to uh, our, our gardening impulses. And I really want to thank each of you for putting the time into this and for being with us today from far and wide and um, yeah, opening up about how you choose your books and offering these suggestions out. Thank you so much for being guests today. Thank you, Jennifer. This was a wonderful opportunity um, to talk about books and also to make me think a little deeper on it. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a subject close to my heart and uh, it's been really fun. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been amazing. And I just want to go out and get these other books now. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, ladies. It was really great. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. 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 My guests today are all gardeners, cooks, mothers, and creatives. Yolanda Burrell is owner of Pollinate Farming Garden Supply in Oakland, California. Lorene Edwards Forkner of Seattle, Washington is editor of the Pacific Horticulture Magazine. Penn Pender is an avid gardener and garden book reader, cook, and craftswoman in Mount Macedon, Australia. For their lists of and thoughts on good garden books, the two you heard about today and three runners-up from each of our guests, make sure to check out this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To make your tax-deductible contribution of support to Cultivating Place, follow the support links at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the program so you never miss an episode, follow the subscribe links at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.